Our scripture lesson today comes from the epistle of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. It's interesting to be a pastor in the life of a church, um, and, and, and this is true at all stages of a church's life, at all stages of a pastor's ministry, in all sizes and shapes of church. It is interesting to be a pastor for a number of reasons. Uh, the, the, perhaps the most interesting part of it is the dance that pastors uh, have to find themselves in the midst of between the past and the future. Anytime a pastor shows up to a church as a new appointment, and anytime a pastor shows up to a church in everyday ministry, no matter how long that pastor has been there, there is this dance between the past and the future. This notion that that's the way we've always done things, and what could we be? This history that lingers with the church, of things that have happened in that church's past, things that are difficult to get over sometimes, and things that we've completely forgotten. And on the other side, all of these possibilities, these things we want to see our church become. But what's interesting, as pastors, as human beings really, we can't do a whole lot about the past. It happened, it's done, we, I mean, we can reflect on it and we can learn from it, but as far as what's happened in the past, it has to kind of stay there. You can't drag the past any further than when it happened. Yeah. Space-time continuum stuff, you just can't move the past. Likewise, you cannot get into the future. 
I know like time machines seem like a really cool idea and to be able to travel into the future and I admit I've watched plenty of TV shows and movies where getting into the future seems really cool but it just doesn't happen in everyday life. The future is out there and sure it is filled with limitless possibilities, all the potential of our hopes and dreams but the future has to stay in the future. We can't drag it to now. So. In this dance between the past and the future, all we really have left is now. Interestingly, we as human beings have the capacity to be able to reflect on the past and to be able to imagine the future, yet we exist only now. Everything that has been before, it was. Boom done. Everything that is to come, it will be. Boom, will be done. But now is the only moment that we are able to actually shape. Now I know that I might start sounding like an inspirational TED talker right now, and I'm going to try to avoid that at all costs, but I just simply want us to, to take a moment in the moment to appreciate now. Because in the life of the church, that's as much as we can deal with. The past is the past. The future will be the future. Now is all we have. We started talking about this during our Acts Bible study. I can't remember if it was this past week or the week before that. I think it was the week before. Uh, when we started noticing that Luke, who's the alleged author of the book of Acts, doesn't really care all that much about what's going to happen to the church in the future also doesn't care all that much about what's going to happen to believers and non-believers when they die or any of that stuff. Whatever the future holds, Luke says, let that be the future. He also takes the past and appreciates it and reflects on it, but he doesn't say a single thing about going back to the past, trying to bring the past into the present. Instead, the book of Acts is very much a book about right now. This is what's happening for the church right now because that's as much as we have and so during this sermon series if you'll give me at least just these three weeks I want us to solely consider now no more focusing on the past the past it was and just because that's the way we've always done things or just because that's a tradition in the life of the church doesn't mean it has to be dragged into the now additionally no more focusing on the future what will be, will be, and we will get there. Takes time, obviously, but we, it, it will come. We're gonna stop trying to just dream away our days, and instead we're going to come to now, because now is really the only time that we have. And so with that being said, we're gonna dive into our scripture lesson this morning. First uh, Peter chapter two considers this notion of Christ as the cornerstone of the church. Christ as the, the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders because it seemed imperfect. Christ as the cornerstone that wasn't wanted because it seemed like it couldn't be used the right way. But Christ still as the cornerstone. Anybody here know what a cornerstone is for? What's the purpose of a cornerstone? Yeah. 
Yes, it is. It is the, it's, the, it's the initial block that's laid on any structure. It is the first that is laid at a corner, so it's appropriately named a cornerstone. Do you know why it's laid at a corner and not in the middle? Yes, yes, absolutely. So everything else can be oriented to that first stone. The cornerstone is the foundation, quite literally, of everything else that is to come. Everything else that's going to be built is going to be built based on that cornerstone. The cornerstone gives the direction of the building. The cornerstone guides the laying of every other stone. So this is a beautiful image that Peter has used for the church here, considering Christ the cornerstone, the stone chosen by God to orient the church, to give the church a functional direction by which to be built. And so uh, Peter says, verse 4, Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we have Christ the cornerstone that has been laid. And now Peter is saying it's time for us to fall into place. The time is now for all other stones to be assembled around that guiding stone. Christ orients the church in a specific direction. This is, this is absolutely critical for us to understand right now because it might sound completely obvious that that's what happens, that Christ is the cornerstone and Christ should orient the church. But I'll tell you right now, that's not what happens in the life of a church. To be a pastor is interesting because you really have to wrestle with the people who want to be the cornerstone of the church, the people who want to orient the direction of the church, the people who say this is how the church should be. And there is absolutely room for people to be a part of the conversation of the direction orientation of the church. However, it is Christ who is meant to orient the life of the church. And we, as the living stones that are laying according to the cornerstone, are called to perform our duty as part of this building, just like every other stone. We've talked about this before. It might have been a little over a year ago or something like that. Uh, talking about the necessity of every single stone that is laying as part of a building that each one is laid with a function, with the idea that it's going to support another stone, and it will be supported by another stone, with the idea that each of these stones have a necessary function for the life of that building. Take a look at the building which we are in. After worship, walk around the building. You'll see the cornerstone over here on the, my left, your right side, that entryway. Walk around, walk around the church and see every other stone, every other brick that is laying and see how its function is necessary to the structure of this building. Peter is calling here for us to recognize right now that this is essential to our identity, that we are called to be the living stones which have a function in the life of the church. We are called to perform our duty as part of this building just like every other stone present. Now, just stands for us to unpack what that duty is. 
what that function is, what we are supposed to do as stones. And so, I know it's gonna feel like a little chunky as I'm talking through each of these points, but we're gonna come back to a nice, pretty bow ending. So, I have a question for just a moment. Can anybody tell me what the word y'all means? <laughs> Interesting word. Yeah. You all. What a wonderful contraction. Y'all. We were, uh, back in May, uh, my wife and I and some friends took a trip to Portland and Seattle. We were just up in that area, never been before, so we wanted to see the Pacific Northwest. And I'll tell you what, it became very evident to every single person around us where exactly we were from. In part because one of the people on our trip refused to wear any shirt that didn't have the Alabama Crimson Tide logo on it. But mostly because we could not get through a single conversation with another person without saying y'all. It was astounding. Uh, one time, uh, my wife Kristen was making a call to a restaurant to see if they were open, and first thing she says, hi, are y'all open today? And I just started laughing. She said, what are you laughing about? I said, you said y'all again. So we've been talking about it this entire time, about how frequently we use the word y'all. It is a necessary word in our culture. To be a part of the southeastern area of the United States, it demands using the word y'all. And if you're from somewhere else, it's not going to take very long for y'all to become a part of your vocabulary. It just, it just happens. But yet, we often neglect the implications of that word. That that word does mean what? You all. You, a secondary, uh, a second person part of speech that is not focused on me, first of all. Consider that. Y'all has nothing to do with me. It is secondary, it is outward and directional. And then, all, to encompass more than just an individual. So, as a church that exists in the southeast of the United States of America, I want us to consider keeping y'all as part of our church vernacular, as part of our vocabulary as a church, because it means you all. It's taking into account you all. And here's what Peter has to say about that. Y'all are called to ministry. Y'all are called to ministry. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Consider that. Y'all are called to ministry. Y'all means all. All people are called to ministry. All people are called to ministry. I'm going to say that one more time because I feel like it doesn't quite set in, no matter how often uh, somebody in the life of the church says it. Y'all are called to ministry. And here's the thing. You all means... Y'all means you all, that you all is encompassing every single person here. Number one, there is no one too old to participate in ministry. 
you want proof, take a, take a moment in the first section of Luke's gospel. Whenever Jesus' parents take him to the temple to receive his name and be circumcised as part of the Jewish tradition, they encounter two people there. Anybody remember who those two people are? Simeon and Anna. These are two very old people. Uh, Anna it's, is a prophetess who has devoted her life since she was widowed to serving in the temple and caring for people in the temple. In Luke, it will tell you that she is 84 years old, but really this is a mistranslation. The actual translation of the Greek, which got lost uh, in, in yeah, over, the, over time, is that she has been doing this ministry for 84 years. So, she had to be, if she was married at a normal age around uh, that day and time, uh, she would have been pushing 100. And she was still doing ministry in the temple, caring for people who came up there, 100 years old. Next we have Simeon, who's actually introduced first, but his age isn't given to us. However, scholars have dug real deep into Simeon's past. I mean real deep. I, was, I had a really fun time learning about Simeon, all these things that I didn't know. And they found that they, at least they strongly believe that Simeon was one of the people who worked on the translation of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, which would mean that if this is true, and we can talk if you are interested in that proof, we can talk more about that later, it's a long story. But if that's true, then at this, day, at this time, Simeon would have been around, are you ready? 200 years old. And that might seem crazy, but Simeon brings up a promise that he remembers from his youth that says, you will not die until you have witnessed salvation on this earth. Simeon was guaranteed this promise, and it may have taken him 200 years to get there, but 200 years old, and he's still serving in the temple. So, my friends, the excuse, I'm too old for ministry, doesn't apply. Y'all are called to ministry. No one is too young either. doesn't matter the age. Now, granted, there is very little that an infant can do in ministry, right, Ellis? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, very, very little that an infant might be able to do. But no one is too young for ministry. There is a place for all who want to participate in the life of the church. Take 1 Timothy 4.12, for example. Paul writes to his apprentice, Timothy, who is fairly young for, to be doing the ministry that he's doing, and says, Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. No one is too young to be in ministry. I'll tell you, this is true. The youth group that I grew up in, uh, we were a very large youth group, first of all. I went to one of those Six Flags Over Jesus churches growing up, so very large youth group. But we decided that there were some things in the life of the church that weren't really essential, or some things in the life of the church that weren't really serving a holy function. And so we, as the youth group, decided that we were going to do something about it in the life of the church. And guess what? That's what we started doing. We started getting involved in all of the stuff that were considered adult ministries and started radically changing them. At one point, we decided that uh, worship in the church was getting a little bit too unworshipful. 
And so we planted ourselves, our youth group, right in the middle of the worship space. And we started being worship leaders, just being in worship. No one is too young to be in ministry. Y'all means all. No one is too unworthy to be in ministry. This is an excuse that I hear, uh, that I have heard in my life, is that I'm not good enough to be doing this kind of ministry. I'm not worthy. I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart, as Scripture asks for. Anybody remember Paul's background? Paul the Apostle? Persecuted and oversaw the murder of Christians. And yet he was called to ministry. No one is too unworthy. Y'all means all. And y'all are called to ministry. And then there is the more ready excuse that we have in modern society. I don't have enough time. My schedule's filled. I've got too much going on. I can't do that. I want, to, I want you to recall a story about uh, two women that Jesus came to their house to uh, visit. Mary and Martha. Mary immediately sits down at the feet of Jesus and just is so engaged in everything that Jesus has to say while Martha is up running around trying to take care of as much as she can. And she has no time to sit and listen to what Jesus has to say. And eventually Jesus has to call her and say, what you are doing isn't as important as what we're doing over here. So, when you think that you just don't have enough time, remember Mary and Martha. And perhaps ask yourself the question, are the things that we spend our time on really worth it? I'll tell you what, I have a lot of time invested in Netflix shows. Probably too much. I don't binge watch shows, I'm not that devoted, but still probably too much. I don't think that that's worth it. Maybe there are other things in my life, in your life, that we could examine and ask. Are these things really worth our time? Because we have a holy calling. We are challenged to be a royal priesthood, and y'all means all, and y'all are called to ministry. Just a few, almost just over a month ago, uh, Kristen and I were in Montgomery at Fraser Memorial Church for our ordination service. It was a beautiful service. It was also very hot in there. I don't know why they can't keep their sanctuary cool, but whatever. It was very hot, and we were in these you know, long black robes that are just thick and dangerous. And we were able to get through that part because of Bishop Watson. Bishop Watson was there um, preaching for the ordination service. And Bishop Watson is from our own conference. He's from the Alabama-West Florida Conference and uh, served at Dolphin Way, uh, believe it or not. And he was there giving the ordination service, the sermon, and he started talking to those of us who were to be ordained, and we were all sitting on the front rows here, and he started talking to us. And, and midway through his sermon, he had to look up to the rest of the congregation and say, this sermon isn't just for them. It's for y'all. <laughs> Why? Because Y'all are called to ministry. He reminded us, Bishop Watson reminded us, that we, that just because some people are called to vocational ministry, ministry as their livelihood, 
does not mean that everybody else can sit back and take a break. All of a sudden, it's not my problem because somebody's being paid to do this kind of ministry. It's the ministry of all believers that matters. There are a handful of pastors in our conference. And by a handful, I mean there are a few hundred. But a few hundred pastors aren't going to make a lick of difference, even in, our, in this small geographic region. It takes all y'all. Because y'all are called to ministry. Why? Because those who follow Christ are compelled to imitate his life and ministry. Just as the stones of the building imitate the cornerstone. And are guided by the cornerstone. See, Christ as the cornerstone. Peter sets this up beautifully for the life of the church. Starting with Christ as the cornerstone. That is our guide, our orientation. And then everything else falls in line behind the cornerstone. Our lives are called to the very same thing. To be a Christian means to be a little Christ or a one who is like Christ. It's what the, the very definition of to be a Christian. And yet the church spends so much of its time focusing on letting somebody else be the cornerstone and becoming what we think that person's vision for the church is. When the vision for the church has already been cast by Christ. Christ's life and ministry was about one major thing, and we are called to imitate that. It's about building relationships between people and God and between people and each other. And he does this in such a beautiful way. He goes around proclaiming the gospel. He goes around proclaiming God's love. The church following the guide of our cornerstone Christ, is to be God's vessel for proclamation. I didn't finish reading verse 9 earlier, so here's the last section of that. But you are a chosen race. Chosen. You are a royal priesthood. That's ministry. A holy nation. Holy means set apart for a purpose. God's own people. In order that... You may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is God's vessel for proclamation. That's the charge that we have before us in ministry. So how does the church do this? Well, I like to defer to one of my favorites, St. Francis of Assisi, who uh, is often quoted saying, Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. We proclaim God's mighty acts through our own acts and deeds. Through ministry. And y'all are called to ministry. And so, my challenge for each of us today is to step out of the past. Let us stop clinging to everything that has once been that we thought were the golden days and trying to drag those back to now because they are the past and that's okay. Let us also 
step out of the future because we spend far too much time in the future dreaming about what we could be. Y'all, one of the most ineffective parts of the United Methodist Church, I'm sorry if anybody else out there is watching this and I'm gonna get <laughs> scolded for saying this, but I'm gonna go ahead and say one of the most ineffective parts of the United Methodist Church is how much time we spend in committee meetings dreaming about what could be. And that is futile work because we exist in the present. What do we need to be doing now? Let us step out of the past. Let us step out of the future and step into now and get involved. That is my challenge to us, to get involved, become a nurturer and start caring for the church, the people who are within it. Friends, there are people who want to grow in the life of the church. The church may be a dying entity in today's society, but that's just because we're neglecting it. And that's, what's, that's what happens when you neglect something, even like a plant. It starts dying if we stop neglecting it. So become a nurturer and care for the church. Or become an outreacher. Yes, I'm going to start making up words now. Become an outreacher. Care for the unchurched or the underchurched. Care for the people who are out in our community who just need some love. Become a witnesser. I know the more appropriate word would just be become a witness, but the other words had er at the end, so I felt like I had to add er at the end of this one. Become a witnesser and connect the community with the gospel of Christ, with this good news. Now is the time. Let us step up, get involved, be the church, because y'all are called to ministry, and y'all means all. Let us pray.